This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Josiah, Levi, Emmeline, Rosemary, and Caleb J. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Josiah, who asks, Would Jesus' brother Judas be Judas Iscariot? It's a good question, Josiah. At the end of Matthew 13, when the people of Nazareth reject Jesus, they give a list of the names of his brothers. It includes four names, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Since we know that one of the 12 disciples was named Judas, it would be natural to assume we're talking about the same guy. So, is Judas, the brother of Jesus, the same person as Judas Iscariot? Now, two things you need to remember here. First, we know from the end of Matthew 12 that Jesus' brothers are not following him. And secondly, the name Judas was actually really common. It's the Hellenized form of the Old Testament name Judah. There was a famous leader of Israel between the Old Testament and New Testament called Judas Maccabeus, and so a lot of people named their kids Judas. And there's actually a book of the Bible that was written by another Judas. We call it the Book of Jude. And no, uh, none of these Judes or Judases were the same person as Judas Iscariot. In fact, they called him Iscariot to keep him from being confused with these other Judases. Iscariot wasn't his last name, it was a reference to where he'd come from, the town of Kerioth. Just as Jesus is sometimes called Jesus of Nazareth, Judas was called Judas of Kerioth, Iscariot in Greek. Now Levi asks, why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? The phrase, Son of Man, Levi, seems to have originated as a way of describing a human being, the way humans might also be described as sons of Adam or Israelites as sons of Abraham. But the way Jesus comes to use that term, it functions as a messianic title, the equivalent to the title Son of God. The Son of Man is the Messiah, the ultimate heir of the first man, Adam. In fact, Paul actually calls Jesus the last Adam in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, which carries a similar meaning to the title Son of Man. When we think of Jesus as the Son of God, we emphasize his divine nature, and when we think of him as the Son of Man, we emphasize his human nature, the way that Jesus acts as a representative leader of the whole human race. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmeline. Let's give Emmeline a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. Do the bread and the cup really turn into Jesus's body and blood? The short answer, Emmeline, is yes. But there are two expressions in your question that I really want to dig into so that we can understand what happens in the Lord's Supper and what doesn't. The first expression is really, and the second is turn into. 
Now, one of those words is exactly correct, and the other is kind of misleading. But before we delve into that, let's establish some basics. The Lord's Supper is one of the two sacraments of the New Testament. The other is baptism. Each of these corresponds to an Old Testament sacrament. Baptism connects back to the rite of circumcision, and the Lord's Supper connects back to the Passover meal. Both of these sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. They represent Christ and his benefits. Whenever we're dealing with signs, we always distinguish between the sign and the thing signified. In the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup are signs, while the body and blood of Christ are the things signified. The signs point to the things signified, so the bread points to the body and the cup to the blood. The question is, what does this pointing to mean? What is the actual relationship of the sign to the thing signified? Now, one answer, and it's a very common answer in today's church, is that there is no actual relationship, that the bread and the cup are just symbols, the way that a stop sign is a symbol to drivers. The stop sign doesn't actually stop anything, it just conveys a message. Now, this way of interpreting the signs of the Lord's Supper goes back to the 1500s, and theologians call it mere memorialism. In other words, the bread and the cup are mere memorials. They're reminders of Christ's sacrifice, nothing more. Now, if you have friends who attend Baptist or non-denominational churches, this is the view of the Lord's Supper that they'll be familiar with. Although it isn't the majority view in church history, it has become the predominant one in American Christianity. There are some problems with it, though. Scripturally speaking, let me mention just two specific passages. In John 6, Jesus says he's the bread of life, like manna from heaven, and says that the bread is his flesh. He's not speaking literally, your friends might object. It's just a metaphor, a symbol. Well, that's not how people hear it at the time. They argue among themselves and they ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They seem to think that Jesus is speaking in more concrete terms than mere symbolism. And when Jesus answers them, he doesn't say, hey, stupid, I'm just speaking symbolically. Don't be silly. Instead, he doubles down, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, don't get me wrong. John Calvin is quite quick to say that John 6 is not teaching specifically about the Lord's Supper, but he adds that it is teaching about what the Lord's Supper teaches. Now, the point here is that Jesus talks in a way that sounds more than merely symbolic. And to be honest with you, the idea of dismissing any biblical symbol as mere symbolism is kind of strange, because the Bible is full of real things and real people that are also signs and symbols. Now, the second passage I want to call your attention to is 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, in partaking of the bread and the cup, we partake of Christ's body and blood. And this is the basis of our unity as believers. Paul says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, 
participation, Paul's word, sounds stronger than mere symbolism, doesn't it? If we want to do justice to the way Scripture speaks, then there has to be more to the bread and cup than the equivalent of a traffic sign. So, does that mean that the bread and the cup physically turn into the body and blood of Jesus? Now, that was the phrase you used in your question, and I answered yes to the question, but that phrase gives a misleading idea of what we believe. Now, many people think that the only alternative to the mere memorial view is the Roman Catholic view, which is called transubstantiation. Now, if you break down that complicated word, you have trans for transformation or change, and then substantiation for substance. So transubstantiation is a change of substance. Now, this is the belief that the substance of the bread changes or turns into the body of Christ, and the substance of the cup turns into the blood of Christ. Now, this view goes back to the Middle Ages, and it depends on the philosophy of Aristotle rather than Christian theology. Aristotle distinguished between the substance of a thing, what it really was, and the accidents of a thing, how it appears to the eye. Now, using these categories, medieval thinkers found a way to explain what happened in the sacrament this way. The substance changed, but the accidents remained the same. The bread still looked like bread, but its substance turned into the body of Christ. The wine in the cup still looked like wine, but its substance turned into the blood of Christ. Now, note that the Bible doesn't say this. It's a philosophical interpretation that was put forward to try and make sense of the mystery that the Bible suggests, the words of Jesus, the explanations of Paul. Let's summarize like this. The medieval church tried to explain the mystery by saying that Jesus was really physically present in the bread and cup, while the Anabaptists of the 1500s kind of ignored the mystery by saying that Jesus wasn't really present at all, that the signs were mere symbols. Now, which side was right? Well, neither one. Martin Luther knew the Anabaptists were wrong because the scripture spoke of something more than symbolism. He was convinced of the real presence of Christ. He also knew that Aristotelian philosophy wasn't the right answer, so he rejected the Roman Catholic view, too. But he got caught up on one idea, that in order to be real, the presence had to be physical. If it wasn't physical, then it wasn't real. But as the Reformers put more thought into this question, it became important not to try to explain the mystery, but simply to believe it fully. So they developed the explanation you'll find in the Westminster Confession, which teaches that Christ is really but spiritually present. The Confession says that worthy receivers, in other words, those who partake in faith, do inwardly by faith really and indeed, in other words, truly, yet not carnally and corporally, so not physically, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So he is really spiritually present. So when you asked if the elements really turned into the body and blood of Christ, I said yes, but a better way to say it would be that the body and blood are really spiritually present and received through faith. 
The sign doesn't turn into the thing signified, and neither are the elements merely symbols. And yet, the participation that Scripture describes is mysterious, and it can't be explained by any formula. So we don't try to explain how it works. We just rejoice in the gift of the Lord's Supper and come to it with faith. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Rosemary asks, why do parents laugh during the sermon when kids don't think that it's funny? To be honest, Rosemary, nobody laughs as much as they should during my sermons. I'm always making hilarious observations. It's just that no one appreciates my sense of humor. Now, whenever you hear people laughing, you should just laugh with them and take my word for it that whatever I said was worth laughing at. And finally, Caleb J. asks, what do you think cap means? He gives me four options. Option A, cool. Option B, fake. Option C, weird. Or option D, expensive. Well, Caleb, I've always assumed that a cap was something you wore on your head, but that's not one of the options. For people without much hair, it's really important to cover up so they wear caps when they go out into the sun. Now, some caps are pretty cool, while others are just weird. There are expensive caps, too, usually the ones with designer logos on them. But I've never seen a fake cap, though I guess a person using a cap to cover up might be giving a fake impression of what's underneath. So let's go with that and say the cap means fake That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.